Welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey there. You're about to hear Thomas take you through part two, the concurring and dissenting opinions of the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in Vrien and Alberta. If you want to hear what me and Zach thought of the case, or hear the majority opinion, head on back to the previous episode. We'll let Thomas take it away. Moving now to the reasons of Justice Yakabuchi. Analysis, Section 1 of the Charter. Section 1 of the Charter guarantees the rights and freedoms set out therein, but allows for charter infringements provided that the state can establish that they are reasonably justifiable in a free and democratic society. The analytical framework for determining whether a statutory provision is a reasonable limit on a charter right or freedom has been set out many times since it was first established in the Queen and Oaks. It was recently restated in Egan, which was quoted with approval in Eldridge. A limitation to a constitutional guarantee will be sustained once two conditions are met. First, the objective of the legislation must be pressing and substantial. Second, the means chosen to attain this legislative end must be reasonable and demonstrably justifiable in a free and democratic society. In order to satisfy the second requirement, three criteria must be satisfied. First, the rights violation must be rationally connected to the aim of the legislation. Second, the impugned provision must minimally impair the charter guarantee. And third, there must be a proportionality between the effect of the measure and its objective, so that the attainment of the legislative goal is not outweighed by the abridgment of the right. In all Section 1 cases, the burden of proof is with the government to show on a balance of probabilities that the violation is justifiable. Pressing and substantial objective. The appellants note that the jurisprudence is somewhat divided with respect to the proper focus of the analysis at this stage of the Section 1 inquiry. While some authorities have examined the purpose of the legislation in its entirety, as in Mirren and Egan, others have considered only the purpose of the limitation that allegedly infringes the Charter, as in R.J.R. Macdonald, Ingen Canada, Attorney General, as well as McKinney. In my view, where, as here, a law has been found to violate the Charter owing to under-inclusion, the legislation as a whole, the impugned provisions, and the omission itself are all properly considered. Section 1 of the Charter states that it is the limits on Charter rights and freedoms that must be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. It follows that under the first part of the Oaks test, the analysis must focus on the objective of the impugned limitation, or in this case, the omission. Indeed, in Oaks, Chief Justice Dixon noted that it was the objective which the measures responsible for a limit on a Charter right or freedom are designed to serve that must be pressing and substantial. However, in my opinion, the objective of the omission cannot be fully understood in isolation. It seems to me that some consideration must also be given to both the purposes of the Act as a whole and the specific impugned provisions so as to give the objective of the omission the context that is necessary for a more complete understanding of its operation in the broader scheme of the legislation. Applying these principles to the case of Barr, the preamble of the IRPA suggests that the object of the Act in its entirety is the recognition and protection of the inherent dignity and inalienable rights of Albertans through the elimination of discriminatory practices. Clearly, the protection of human rights in our society is a laudable goal and is aptly described as pressing and substantial. As to the impugned provisions, their objective can generally be described as the protection against discrimination for Albertans belonging to specific groups in various settings, for example, employment and accommodation. This too is properly regarded as a pressing and substantial objective. Against this backdrop, what can be said of the objective of the omission? The respondents meant that only the overall goal of the act need to be examined and offer no direct submissions in answer to this question. In the Court of Appeal, absent any evidence on this point, Justice Hunt relied on the factum of the respondents from which she gleaned several possible reasons why, when the matter was debated by the Alberta legislature in 1985, and considered at various other times, a decision was made not to add sexual orientation to the IRPA. Some of these same reasons appear in the factum that the respondents have submitted to this court and include the following. The IRPA is inadequate to address some of the concerns expressed by the homosexual community, such as parental acceptance. Attitudes cannot be changed by order of the Human Rights Commission. Despite the minister asking for examples which would be ameliorated by the inclusion of sexual orientation in the IRPA, such as employment, only a few illustrations were provided. Codification of marginal grounds which affect few persons raises objections from larger numbers of others, adding to the number of exceptions that would have to be needed to satisfy both groups. In my view, although these statements go some distance towards explaining the legislature's choice to exclude sexual orientation from the IRPA, 
this is not the type of evidence required under the first step of the Oakes test. At the first stage of that test, the government is asked to demonstrate that the objective of the omission is pressing and substantial. An objective, being a goal or a purpose to be achieved, is a very different concept from an explanation, which makes plain that which is not immediately obvious. In my opinion, the above statements fall into the latter category and hence are of little help. In his reasons for judgment, Justice McClung alludes to moral considerations that likely inform the legislature's choice. However, even if such considerations could be said to amount to a pressing and substantial objective, a position which I find difficult to accept in this case, I note that it is well established that the onus of justifying a charter infringement rests in the government, see Andrews and Law Society of British Columbia. In the absence of any submissions regarding the pressing and substantial nature of the objective of the omission, the respondents have failed to discharge their evidentiary burden, and thus I conclude that their case must fail at this stage of the Section 1 analysis. Often, the objective of an omission is discernible from the act as a whole. Where it is not, one can look to the effects of the omission. Even if I were to pull the evidentiary burden aside in an attempt to discover an objective for the omission from the provisions of the IRPA, in my view, the result would be the same. As I noted above, the overall goal of the IRPA is the protection of the dignity and rights of all persons living in Alberta. The exclusion of sexual orientation from the act effectively denies gay men and lesbians such protection. In my view, where, as here, a legislative omission is on its face the very antithesis of the principles embodied in the legislation as a whole, the act itself cannot be said to indicate any discernible objective from the omission that might be described as pressing and substantial so as to justify overriding constitutionally protected rights. Thus, on either analysis, the respondent's case fails at the initial steps of the Oakes test. Proportionality analysis. Rational connection. On the basis of my conclusion above, it is not necessary to analyze the second part of the Oakes test to dispose of this appeal. However, to deal with this matter more fully, I will go on to consider the remainder of the test. I will assume, solely for the sake of the analysis, that the respondents correctly argued that where the objective of the whole of the legislation is pressing and substantial, this is sufficient to satisfy the first stage of the inquiry under Section 1 of the Charter. At the second stage of the Oakes test, the preliminary inquiry is a consideration of the rationality of the impugned provision. The party invoking Section 1 must demonstrate that a rational connection exists between the objective of the provisions under attack and the measures that have been adopted. Thus, in the case of Barr, it falls to the legislature to show that there is a rational connection between the goal of protection against discrimination for Albertans belonging to specific groups in various settings and the exclusion of gay men and lesbians from the impugned provisions of the IRPA. Far from being rationally connected to the objective of the impugned provisions, the exclusion of sexual orientation from the Act is antithetical to that goal. Indeed, it would be nonsensical to say that the goal of protecting persons from discrimination is rationally connected to, or advanced by, denying such protection to a group which this Court has recognized as historically disadvantaged. However, relying on the reasons of Justice Sapinka and Egan, the respondents submit that a rational connection to the purpose of a statute can be achieved through the use of incremental means which, over time, expand the scope of the legislation to all those whom the legislature determines to be in need of statutory protection. The respondents further suggest that the legislative history of the IRPA demonstrates a pattern of progressive incrementalism sufficient to meet the government's onus under the rational connection stage of the Oakes test. In my view, this argument cannot be sustained. The incrementalism approach was advocated in Egan by Justice Sapinka in a context very different from that in the case of Barr. Firstly, in Egan, where the concern was the exclusion of same-sex couples from the Old Age Security Act's definition of the term spouse, the Attorney General took the position that more acceptable arrangements could be worked out over time. In contrast, in the present case, the inclusion of sexual orientation in the IRPA has been repeatedly rejected by the Alberta Legislature. Thus, it is difficult to see how any form of incrementalism is being applied with regard to the protection of the rights of gay men and lesbians. Secondly, in EGAN, there was considerable concern regarding the financial impact of extending a benefit scheme to a previously excluded group. Including sexual orientation in the IRPA does not give rise to the same concerns. Indeed, the trial judge, despite the absence of evidence on this matter, assumed that the budgetary impact on the Human Rights Commission would not be substantial enough to change the scheme of the legislation. Having not heard anything persuasive to the contrary, I am prepared to make the same assumption. In addition, in Egan, writing on behalf of myself and Justice Corey, I took the position that the need for governmental incrementalism was an inappropriate justification for charter violations. 
I remain convinced that this approach is generally not suitable for that purpose, especially where, as here, the statute in issue is a comprehensive code of human rights provisions. In my opinion, groups that have historically been the target of discrimination cannot be expected to wait patiently for the protection of their human dignity and equal rights while governments move toward reform one step at a time. If the infringements of the rights and freedoms of these groups is permitted to persist while governments fail to pursue equality diligently, then the guarantees of the Charter will be reduced to little more than empty words. Minimal impairment. The respondents contend that an IRPA which is silent as to sexual orientation minimally impairs the appellant's Section 15 rights. The IRPA is alleged to be the type of social policy legislation that requires the Alberta legislature to mediate between competing groups. It is suggested that the competing interests in the present case are religious freedom and homosexuality. Relying upon Justice Sapinka's reasons in EGAN, the respondents advocate judicial deference in these circumstances. I reject these submissions for several reasons. To begin, I cannot accede to the suggestion that the Alberta legislature has been cast in the role of mediator between competing groups. To the extent that there may be a conflict between religious freedom and the protection of gay men and lesbians, the IRPA contains internal mechanisms for balancing these rival concerns. Section 11.1 of the IRPA provides a defense where the discrimination was reasonable and justifiable in the circumstances." End quote. In addition, Section 7 sub 3 and 8 sub 2 excuse discrimination which can be linked to a bona fide occupational requirement. The balancing provisions ensure that no conferral of rights is absolute. Rather, rights are recognized in tandem, with no one right being automatically paramount to another. Given the presence of the internal balancing mechanisms, the argument that the government's choices regarding the conferral of rights are constrained by its role as mediator between competing concerns cannot be sustained. The Alberta legislature is not being asked to abandon the role of mediator. Rather, by virtue of the provisions of the IRPA, this is a task which is carried out as the act is applied on a case-by-case basis in specific factual contexts. Thus, in the present case, it is no answer to say that the rights cannot be conferred upon one group because of a conflict with the rights of another. A complete solution to any such conflict already exists within the legislation. In any event, although this court has recognized that legislatures ought to be accorded some leeway when making choices between competing social concerns, see Irwin Toy Limited in Quebec, Attorney General, as well as Egan, judicial deference is not without limits. In Eldridge, Justice Laforet quoted with approval from his reasons in Tetro Gallery in Canada, Employment and Immigration Commission, wherein he stated that the deference that will be accorded to the government when legislating in these matters does not give them an unrestricted license to disregard an individual's charter rights. This position was echoed by Justice McLaughlin in RGA MacDonald. Care must be taken not to extend the notion of deference too far. Deference must not be carried to the point of relieving the government of the burden which the charter places upon it, of demonstrating that the limits it has imposed on guaranteed rights are reasonable and justifiable. Parliament has its role, to choose the appropriate response to social problems within the limiting framework of the Constitution. But the courts also have a role, to determine objectively and impartially whether Parliament's choice falls within the limiting framework of the Constitution. The courts are no more permitted to abdicate their responsibility than is Parliament. To carry judicial deference to this point of accepting Parliament's view simply on the basis that the problem is serious and the solution is difficult would be to diminish the role of the courts in the constitutional process and to weaken the structure of rights upon which our constitution and our nation is founded. In the present case, the government of Alberta has failed to demonstrate that it had a reasonable basis for excluding sexual orientation from the IRPA. Gay men and lesbians do not have any, much less equal, protection against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation under the IRPA. The exclusion constitutes total, not minimal, impairment of the Charter Guarantee of Equality. In these circumstances, the call for judicial deference is inappropriate. Proportionality between the effect of the measure and the objective of the legislation. The respondents did not address this third element of the proportionality requirement. However, in my view, the deleterious effects of the exclusion of sexual orientation from the IRPA, as noted by Justice Corey, are numerous and clear. As the Alberta government has failed to demonstrate any salutary effect of the exclusion in promoting and protecting human rights, I cannot accept that there is any proportionality between the attainment of the legislative goal and the infringement of the appellant's equality rights. I conclude that the exclusion of sexual orientation from the IRPA does not meet the requirements of the Oaks test, and accordingly, it cannot be saved under Section 1 of the Charter. Remedy Introduction 
relationship between the legislatures and the courts under the Charter. Having found the exclusion of sexual orientation from the IRPA to be an unjustifiable violation of the appellant's equality rights, I now turn to the question of remedy under Section 52 of the Constitution Act 1982. Before discussing the jurisprudence on remedies, I believe it might be helpful to pause to reflect more broadly on the general issue of the relationship between legislatures and the courts in the age of the Charter. Much was made an argument before us about the inadvisability of the court interfering with or otherwise meddling in what might be regarded as the proper role of the legislature, which in this case was to decide whether or not sexual orientation would be added to Alberta's human rights legislation. Indeed, it seems that hardly a day goes by without some comment or criticism to the effect that under the Charter, courts are wrongly usurping the role of the legislatures. I believe this allegation misunderstands what took place and what was intended when our country adopted the Charter in 1981 to 1982. When the Charter was introduced, Canada went, in the words of former Chief Justice Brian Dixon, from a system of parliamentary supremacy to constitutional supremacy. Simply put, each Canadian was given individual rights and freedoms which no government or legislature could take away. However, as freedoms and rights are not absolute, governments and legislatures could justify the qualification or infringement of these constitutional rights under Section 1, as I previously discussed. Inevitably, disputes over the meaning of the rights and their justification would have to be settled, and here the role of the judiciary enters to resolve these disputes. Many countries have assigned the important role of judicial review to their supreme or constitutional courts. We should recall that it was the deliberate choice of our provincial and federal legislatures in adopting the Charter to assign an interpretive role to the courts and to command them under Section 52 to declare unconstitutional legislation invalid. However, giving courts the power and commandment to invalidate legislation where necessary has not eliminated the debate over the legitimacy of courts taking such action. As eloquently put by A.M. Bickle in his outstanding work, The Least Dangerous Branch, the Supreme Court at the Bar of Politics, it thwarts the will of the representatives of the people. So judicial review, it is alleged, is illegitimate because it is anti-democratic in that unelected officials, judges, are overruling elected representatives, legislatures. To respond, it should be emphasized again that our Charter's introduction and the consequential remedial role of the courts were choices of the Canadian people through their elected representatives as part of a redefinition of our democracy. Our constitutional design was refashioned to state that henceforth, the legislatures and executive must perform their roles in conformity with the newly conferred constitutional rights and freedoms. That the courts were the trustees of these rights insofar as disputes arose concerning their interpretation was a necessary part of this new design. So courts and their trustee or arbiter role must perforce scrutinize the work of the legislature and executive, not in the name of the courts, but in the interests of the new social contract that was democratically chosen. All of this is implied in the power given to the courts under Section 24 of the Charter and Section 52 of the Constitution Act 1982. Because the courts are independent from the executive and legislature, litigants and citizens generally can rely on the courts to make reasoned and principled decisions according to the dictates of the Constitution, even though specific decisions may not be universally acclaimed. In carrying out their duties, courts are not to second-guess legislatures and the executive, they are not to make value judgments on what they regard as the proper policy choice, this is for the other branches. Rather, the courts are to uphold the Constitution and have been expressly invited to perform that role by the Constitution itself. But respect by the courts for the legislature and the executive role is as important as ensuring that the other branches respect each other's role and the role of the courts. This mutual respect is in some ways expressed in the provisions of our Constitution as shown by the wording of certain of the constitutional rights themselves. For example, Section 7 of the Charter speaks of no denial of their rights therein except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice, which include the process of law and legislative action. Section 1 and the jurisprudence under it are also important to ensure respect for legislative action and the collective or societal interests represented by legislation. In addition, as will be discussed below, in fashioning a remedy with regard to a Charter violation, a court must be mindful of the role of the legislature. Moreover, Section 33, the notwithstanding clause, establishes that the final word in our constitutional structure is in fact left to the legislature and not to the courts. As I view the matter, the Charter has given rise to a more dynamic interaction among the branches of governance. This interaction has been aptly described as a dialogue by some, including Peter Hogg and Bushell. In reviewing legislative enactments and executive decisions to ensure constitutional validity, the courts speak to the legislative and executive branches. As has been pointed out, most of the legislation held not to pass constitutional muster 
has been followed by new legislation designed to accomplish similar objectives. By doing this, the legislature responds to the courts, hence the dialogue among the branches. To my mind, a great value of judicial review and this dialogue among the branches is that each of the branches is made somewhat accountable to the other. The work of the legislature is reviewed by the courts, and the work of the court and its decisions can be reacted to by the legislature in the passing of new legislation, or even overarching laws under Section 33 of the Charter. This dialogue between and accountability of each of the branches have the effect of enhancing the democratic process, not denying it. There is also another aspect of judicial review that promotes democratic values. Although a court's invalidation of legislation usually involves negating the will of the majority, we must remember that the concept of democracy is broader than the notion of majority rule, fundamental as that may be. In this case, we would do well to heed the words of Chief Justice Dixon in Oaks. The court must be guided by the values and principles essential to a free and democratic society, which I believe to embody, to name but a few, respect for the inherent dignity of the human person, commitment to social justice and equality, accommodation of a wide variety of beliefs, respect for cultural and group identity, and faith in social and political institutions which enhance the participation of individuals and groups in society. So, for example, when a court interprets legislation alleged to be a reasonable limitation in a free and democratic society, as stated in Section 1 of the Charter, the court must inevitably delineate some of the attributes of a democratic society. Although it is not necessary to articulate the complete list of democratic attributes in these remarks, Chief Justice Dixon's comments remain instructive. Democratic values and principles under the Charter demand that legislators and the executive take these into account, and if they fail to do so, the court should stand ready to intervene to protect these democratic values as appropriate. As others have so forcefully stated, judges are not acting undemocratically by intervening when there are indicators that a legislative or executive decision was not reached in accordance with the democratic principles mandated by the Charter. With this background in mind, I now turn to discuss the jurisprudence on the specific questions of the choice of the appropriate remedy that should apply in this appeal. Remedial Principles The leading case on constitutional remedies is Schachter. Writing on behalf of the majority in Schachter, Chief Justice Lamar stated that the first step in selecting a remedial course under Section 52 is to define the extent of the Charter's inconsistency which must be struck down. In the present case, that inconsistency is the exclusion of sexual orientation from the protected grounds of the IRPA. As I have concluded above, this exclusion is an unjustifiable infringement upon the equality rights guaranteed in Section 15 of the Charter. Once the Charter inconsistency has been identified, the next step is to determine which remedy is appropriate. In Schachter, this court noted that, depending upon the circumstances, there are several remedial options available to a court in dealing with a Charter violation that was not saved by Section 1. These include striking down the legislation, severance of the offending sections, striking down or severance with a temporary suspension of the Declaration of Invalidity, reading down, and reading provisions into the legislation. Because the Charter violation in the instant case stems from an omission, the remedy of reading down is simply not available. Further, I note that given the considerable number of sections at issue in this case and the important roles they play in the scheme of the IRPA as a whole, severance of these sections from the remainder of the Act would be akin to striking down the entire Act. The appellants suggest that the circumstances of this case warrant the reading in of sexual orientation into the offending sections of the IRPA. However, in the Alberta Court of Appeal, Justice O'Leary and Justice Hunt agree that the appropriate remedy would be to declare the irrelevant provisions of the IRPA unconstitutional and to suspend that declaration for a period of time to allow the legislature to address the matter. Justice McClung would have gone further and declared the IRPA invalid in its entirety. With respect for the reasons that follow, I cannot agree with either remedy chosen by the Court of Appeal. In Schachter, Chief Justice Lemaire noted that when determining whether the remedy of reading in is appropriate, courts must have regard to the twin guiding principles, namely, respect for the role of the legislature and respect for the purposes of the Charter, which I have discussed generally above. Turning first to the role of the legislature, Chief Justice Lamar stated that reading in is an important tool in avoiding undue intrusion into the legislative sphere. The purpose of reading in is to be as faithful as possible within the requirements of the Constitution to the scheme enacted by the legislature. He went on to quote the following passage from Carol Rogerson in a judicial search for appropriate remedies under the Charter, the examples of overbreath and vagueness in R.J. Sharp, Charter Litigation. Courts should generally go as far as required to protect rights, but no further. Interference with legitimate legislative purposes should be minimized, and laws serving such purposes should be allowed to remain operative to the extent that rights are not violated. Legislation which serves desirable social purposes may give rise to entitlements which themselves deserve some protection. 
As I discussed above, the purpose of the IRPA is the recognition and protection of the inherent dignity and inalienable rights of Albertans through the elimination of discriminatory practices. It seems to me that the remedy of reading in would minimize interference with the clearly legitimate legislative purpose and thereby avoid excessive intrusion into the legislative sphere, whereas striking down the IRPA would deprive all Albertans of human rights protection and thereby unduly interfere with the scheme enacted by the legislature. I find support for my position in Hague, where the Ontario Court of Appeal read the words sexual orientation into Section 3, Sub 1 of the Canadian Human Rights Act. Justice Crever, writing for a unanimous court, stated that it was inconceivable that Parliament would have preferred no Human Rights Act over one that included sexual orientation as a prohibited ground of discrimination. To believe otherwise would be a gratuitous insult to Parliament. Turning to the second of the twin guiding principles, the respondents suggest that the facts of this case are illustrative of a conflict between two grounds, namely religion and sexual orientation. If sexual orientation were simply read into the IRPA, the respondents contend that this would undermine the ability of the IRPA to provide protection against discrimination based on religion, one of the fundamental goals of that legislation. This result is alleged to be inconsistent with the deeper social purposes of the Charter. I concluded above that the internal balancing mechanisms of the IRPA were an adequate means of disposing of any conflict that might arise between religion and sexual orientation. Thus, I cannot accept the respondent's assertion that the reading-in approach does not respect the purposes of the Charter. In fact, as I see the matter, reading sexual orientation into the IRPA as a further ground of prohibited discrimination can only enhance those purposes. The Charter, like the IRPA, is concerned with the promotion and protection of inherent dignity and inalienable rights. Thus, expanding the list of prohibited grounds of discrimination in the IRPA allows this Court to act in a manner which, consistent with the purposes of the Charter, would augment the scope of the IRPA's protections. In contrast, striking down or severing parts of the IRPA would deny all Albertans protection from marketplace discrimination. In my view, this result is clearly antithetical to the purposes of the Charter. In Schachter, Chief Justice Lamar noted that the twin guiding principles can only be fulfilled if due consideration is given to several additional criteria which further inform the determination as to whether the remedy of reading in is appropriate. These include remedial precision, budgetary implications, effect on the thrust of the legislation, and interference with legislative objectives. As to the first of the above listed criteria, the court must be able to define with a sufficient degree of precision how the statute ought to be extended in order to comply with the Constitution. I do not believe that the present case is one in which the court has been improperly called upon to fill in large gaps in the legislation. Rather, in my view, there is remedial precision insofar as the insertion of the word sexual orientation into the prohibited grounds of discrimination listed in the preamble and sections 2 sub 1, 3, 4, 7 sub 1, 8 sub 1, 10, and 16 sub 1 of the IRPA will, without more, ensure the validity of the legislation and remedy the constitutional wrong. In her reasons in this case, Justice Hunt concluded that there was sufficient remedial precision to justify the remedy of reading in. She expressed two concerns. Firstly, she held that the adequate precision likely would not be possible without a definition of the term sexual orientation. With respect, I cannot agree. Although the term sexual orientation has been defined in the human rights legislation of the Yukon Territory, it appears undefined in the Canadian Human Rights Act, the human rights legislation of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Quebec, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, British Columbia, and Section 718.2 sub a paragraph i of the criminal code as amended in addition sexual orientation was not defined when it was recognized by this court in egan as an analogous ground under section 15 of the charter in my opinion sexual orientation is a commonly used term with an easily discernible common sense meaning in addition i concur with the comments of r color who stated that if there is any ambiguity in the term sexual orientation, it is no greater than that encompassed by terms such as race, ethnic origin, or religion, all of which are undefined prohibited grounds of discrimination in the Charter, which have not posed any undue difficulty for the courts or legislatures to understand and apply. Justice Hunt was also troubled by the possible impact of reading in upon Section 7 sub 2 of the IRPA. This section states that Section 7 sub 1, Employment, as regards age and marital status, does not affect the operation of any bona fide retirement or pension plan or the terms or conditions of any bona fide group or employee insurance plan. As the Court of Appeal heard no argument on this point, and as there was no evidence before the Court to explain the rationale behind this provision, 
Justice Hunt held that if the protections of the IRPA were to be extended to gay men and lesbians, it would be necessary to decide whether this group would be included or excluded from Section 7 sub 2. She found that this was something that the court was in no position to do. In light of this difficulty, Justice Hunt was concerned that the reading-in remedy would engage the court in this kind of filling in of the details, against which Chief Justice Lamar cautions in Schachter. In my view, whether gay men and lesbians are included or excluded from Section 7 sub 2 is a peripheral issue which does not deprive the reading-in remedy of their requisite precision. I agree with Kent Roach, who noted that the legislature can always subsequently intervene on matters of detail that are not dictated by the Constitution. I therefore conclude on this point that, in the present case, there is sufficient remedial precision to justify the remedy of reading in. Turning to budgetary repercussions, in the circumstances of the present appeal, such considerations are not sufficiently significant to warrant avoiding the reading in approach. On this issue, the trial judge stated, there will undoubtedly be some budgetary impact on the Human Rights Commission as a result of the addition of sexual orientation as a prohibited ground of discrimination. But unlike Schachter, it would not be substantial enough to change the nature of the scheme of the legislation. Although the scope of this court's review of the IRPA is considerably broader than that which the trial judge was asked to undertake, as I noted above, having not heard anything persuasive to the contrary, I am not prepared to interfere with the trial judge's findings on this matter. As to the effects on the thrust of the legislation, it is difficult to see any deleterious impact. All persons covered under the current scope of the IRPA would continue to benefit from the protection provided by the Act in the same manner as they had before the reading in of sexual orientation. Thus, I conclude that it is reasonable to assume that if the legislature had been faced with this choice of having no human rights statute or having one that offered protection on the ground of sexual orientation, the latter option would have been chosen. As the inclusion of sexual orientation in the IRPA does not alter the legislation to any significant degree, it is reasonable to assume that the legislature would have enacted it in any event. In addition, in Schachter, Chief Justice Lamarck noted that, in cases where the issue is whether to extend benefits to a group excluded from the legislation, the question of the effects on the thrust of the legislation will sometimes focus on the size of the group to be added as compared to the group originally benefited. He quoted with approval from Noddle, where Justice Rowles, extended the provision of benefits to spouses to include same-sex spouses. In her view, the remedy of reading in was far less intrusive to the intention of the legislature than striking down the benefit scheme because the group to be added was much smaller than the group already receiving the benefit. Chief Justice Lamar went on to note that, where the group to be added is smaller than the group originally benefited, this is an indication that the assumption that the legislature would have enacted the benefit in any case is a sound one. In the present case, gay men and lesbians are clearly a smaller group than those already benefited by the IRPA. Thus, in my view, reading in remains the less intrusive option. The final criterion to examine is interference with the legislative objective. In Schachter, Chief Justice Lamar commented upon this factor as follows. The degree to which a particular remedy intrudes into the legislative sphere can only be determined by giving careful attention to the objective embodied in the legislation in question. A second level of legislative intention may be manifest in the means chosen to pursue that objective. With regard to the first level of legislative intention, as I discussed above, it is clear that reading sexual orientation into the IRPA would not interfere with the objectives of the legislation. Rather, in my view, it can only enhance that objective. However, at first blush, it appears that reading in might interfere with the second level of legislative intention identified by Chief Justice Lamar. As the Alberta legislature has expressly chosen to exclude sexual orientation from the list of prohibited grounds of discrimination in the IRPA, the respondents argue that reading in would unduly interfere with the will of the government. Justice McClung shares this view. In his opinion, the remedy of reading in will never be appropriate where a legislative omission reflects a deliberate choice of the legislating body. He states that if a statute is unconstitutional, the preferred consequence should be its return to the sponsoring legislature for representative constitutional overhaul. However, as I see the matter, by definition, charter scrutiny will always involve some interference with the legislative will. Where a statute has been found to be unconstitutional, whether the court chooses to read provisions into the legislation or to strike it down, legislative intent is necessarily interfered with to some extent. Therefore, the closest a court can come to respecting the legislative intention is to determine what the legislature would likely have done if it had known that its chosen measures would be found unconstitutional. As I see the matter, a deliberate choice of means will not act as a bar to reading in, save for those circumstances in which the means chosen can be shown to 
be of such centrality to the aims of the legislature and so integral to the scheme of the legislation that the legislature would not have enacted the statute without them. Indeed, as noted by the intervener Canadian Jewish Congress, if reading in is always deemed an appropriate remedy where a government has expressly chosen a course of action, this amounts to the suggestion that whenever a government violates the charter right, it ought to do so in a deliberate manner so as to avoid the remedy of reading in. In my view, this is a wholly unacceptable result. In the case of Barr, the means chosen by the legislature, namely the exclusion of sexual orientation from the IRPA, can hardly be described as integral to the scheme of the act. Nor can I accept that this choice was of such centrality to the aims of the legislature that it would prefer to sacrifice the entire IRPA rather than include sexual orientation as a prohibited ground of discrimination, particularly for the reasons I will now discuss. As mentioned by my colleague Justice Corey in 1993, the Alberta legislature appointed the Alberta Human Rights Review Panel to conduct a public review of the IRPA and the Alberta Human Rights Commission. The panel issued a report making several recommendations including the inclusion of sexual orientation as a prohibited ground of discrimination in all areas covered by the Act. The government responded to this recommendation by deferring this decision to the judiciary. This recommendation will be dealt with through the current court case of Vriend and Her Majesty the Queen in right of Alberta and Her Majesty's Attorney General in and for the province of Alberta. Our commitment to human rights, the government's response to the recommendation of the Alberta Human Rights Review Panel. In my opinion, this statement is a clear intention that, in light of the controversy surrounding the protection of gay men and lesbians under the IRPA, it was the intention of the Alberta legislature to defer to the courts on this issue. Indeed, I interpret the statement to be an express invitation for the courts to read sexual orientation into the IRPA in the event that its exclusion from the legislation is found to violate the provisions of the Charter. Therefore, primarily because of this and contrary to the assertions of the respondents, I believe that, in these circumstances, the remedy of reading in is entirely consistent with the legislative intention. In addition to the comments which I outlined above, Justice McClung also criticizes the remedy of reading in on a more fundamental level. He views the reading in of provisions into a statute as an unacceptable intrusion of the courts into the legislative process. Commenting upon the trial judge's decision to read sexual orientation into the IRPA, he stated, to amend and extend it by reading up to include sexual orientation was a sizable judicial intervention into the affairs of the community and, at a minimum, an undesirable arrogation of legislative power by the court. To me, it is an extravagant exercise for any Section 96 judge to use the enormous review power of his or her office in this way in order to wean competent legislatures from their errors. Justice McClung goes on to say that by reading in, the trial judge overrode the express will of the electors of the province of Alberta, who, speaking through their parliamentary representatives, have decided that sexual orientation is not to be included in the protected categories of the IRPA. With respect for the reasons outlined in the previous section of these reasons, I do not accept that extending the legislation in this case is an undemocratic exercise of judicial power. Rather, I concur with the comments of W. Black, who states that, there is no conflict between judicial review and democracy if judges intervene when there are indications that a decision was not reached in accordance with democratic principles. Democracy requires that all citizens be allowed to participate in the democratic process either directly or through equal consideration by their representatives. Parliamentary sovereignty is a means to this end, not an end in itself. In my view, the process by which the Alberta legislature decided to exclude sexual orientation from the IRPA was inconsistent with democratic principles. Both the trial judge and all judges in the Court of Appeal agreed that the exclusion of sexual orientation from the IRPA was a conscious and deliberate legislative choice. While Justice McClung relies on this fact as a reason for the courts not to intervene, the theories of judicial review developed by several authors suggest the opposite conclusion. As I have already discussed, the concept of democracy means more than majority rule, as Chief Justice Dixon so ably reminded us in Oaks, in my view, a democracy requires that legislators take into account the interests of majorities and minorities alike, all of whom will be affected by the decisions they make. Where the interests of a minority have been denied consideration, especially where that group has historically been the target of prejudice and discrimination, I believe that judicial intervention is warranted to correct a democratic process that has acted improperly. Justice McClung states, Allowing judicial and basically final proclamation of legislative change ignores our adopted British parliamentary safeguards historic in themselves, and which are the practical bulkheads that protect representative government. 
When unelected judges choose to legislate, parliamentary checks and balances and conventions are simply shelved. When a court remedies an unconstitutional statute by reading in provisions, no doubt this constrains the legislative process and therefore should not be done needlessly, but only after considered examination. However, in my view, the parliamentary safeguards remain. Governments are free to modify the amended legislation by passing exceptions and defenses which they feel could be justified under Section 1 of the Charter. Thus, when a court reads in, this is not the end of the legislative process because the legislature can pass new legislation in response, as I outlined above. Moreover, the legislators can always turn to Section 33 of the Charter, the override provision, which in my view is the ultimate parliamentary safeguard. On the basis of the foregoing analysis, I conclude that reading sexual orientation into the impugned provisions of the IRPA is the most appropriate way of remedying the under-inclusive legislation. The appellant suggests that this remedy should have immediate effect. I agree. There is no risk in the present case of harmful unintended consequences upon private parties or public funds, as in Egan. Further, the mechanisms to deal with the complaints of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation are already in place and require no significant adjustment. I find additional support for my position in Hague and Newfoundland Rights Commission and Newfoundland Minister of Employment and Labour Relations, where sexual orientation was read into the impugned statutes without a suspension of the remedy. There is no evidence before this court to suggest that any harm resulted from the immediate operation of the remedy in those cases. Conclusions and Disposition for the reasons outlined by Justice Corey, I conclude that the exclusion of sexual orientation from the protected grounds of discrimination in the IRPA violates Section 15 of the Charter. In addition, for the reasons set out above, the impugned legislation cannot be saved under Section 1 of the Charter. Accordingly, I would allow the appeal, dismiss the cross-appeal, and set aside the judgment of the Alberta Court of Appeal with party and party costs throughout. I would answer the constitutional questions as follows. Question 1. Do A, decisions not to include sexual orientation, or B, the non-inclusion of sexual orientation as a prohibited ground of discrimination in the preamble and sections 2 sub 1, 3, 4, 7 sub 1, 8 sub 1, 10, and 16 sub 1 of the Individual Rights Protection Act, now called the Human Rights Citizenship and Multiculturalism Act, infringe or deny the rights guaranteed by section 15 sub 1 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms? The answer, yes. Question 2. If the answer to question 1 is yes, is the infringement or denial demonstrably justified as a reasonable limit pursuant to section 1 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms? The answer, no. The following reasons are delivered by Justice Leroy-Dibé. I am in general agreement with the results reached by my colleagues Justices Corey and Yakabuchi. While I agree with Justice Yakabuchi's approach to section 1 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, I wish to reiterate the position which I have maintained throughout with respect to the approach to be taken to Section 15 Sub 1. In my view, Section 15 Sub 1 of the Charter is first and foremost an equality provision. In Andrews and Law Society British Columbia, this court unanimously accepted Section 15's primary mission as the promotion of a society in which all are secure in the knowledge. They are recognized at law as human beings equally deserving of concern, respect, and consideration. In Egan and Canada, I articulated the approach to equality in a similar vein. At the heart of Section 15 is the promotion of a society in which all are secure in the knowledge that they are recognized at law as equal human beings, equally capable and equally deserving. A person or group of persons that has been discriminated against within the meaning of Section 15 of the Charter, when members of that group have been made to feel, by virtue of the impugned legislative distinction, they are less capable or less worthy of recognition or value as human beings or as members of Canadian society, equally deserving of concern, respect, and consideration. These are the core elements of a definition of discrimination, a definition that focuses on impact, that is discriminatory effect, rather than on constituent elements, that is the grounds of the distinction. Integral to the inquiry into whether a legislative distinction is in fact discriminatory within the meaning of section 15 sub 1, is an appreciation of both the social vulnerability of the affected individual or group and the nature of the interest which is affected in terms of its importance to human dignity and personhood. Given this purpose, every legislative distinction, including, as in this case, a legislative omission, which negatively impacts on an individual or group who has been found to be disadvantaged in our society, the impact of which deprives the individual or group of the law's protection or benefit in a way which negatively affects their human dignity and personhood, does not treat these persons or groups 
with equal concern, respect, and consideration. Consequently, Section 15 sub 1 of the Charter is engaged. At this point, the burden shifts to the legislature to justify such an infringement of Section 15 sub 1 under Section 1. It is at this stage only that the relevancy of the distinction to the legislative objective, among other factors, may be pertinent. I do not agree with the centrality of enumerated and analogous grounds in Justice Corey's approach to Section 15 sub 1. Although the presence of enumerated or analogous grounds may be indicia of discrimination, or may even raise a presumption of discrimination, it is in the appreciation of the nature of the individual or group who is being negatively affected that they should be examined. Of greatest significance to a finding of discrimination is the effect of the legislative distinction on that individual or group. As Justice McIntyre stated for the court in Andrews, to approach the ideal of full equality before and under the law, the main consideration must be the impact of the law on the individual or the group concerned. The Section 15.1 analysis should properly focus on uncovering and understanding the negative impacts of a legislative distinction on the affected individual or group. The Section 15.1 analysis should properly focus on uncovering and understanding the negative impacts of a legislative distinction on the affected individual or group, rather than on whether the distinction has been made on an enumerated or analogous ground. In my view, to instead make the presence of an enumerated or analogous ground a precondition to the search for discriminatory effects is inconsistent with a liberal and purposive approach to charter interpretations generally, and specifically to a charter guarantee which is at the heart of our aspirations as a society that everyone be treated equally. As a final comment, I wish to stress that I cannot agree with Justice Corey's incorporation of Justice Laforet's narrow approach to defining analogous grounds. At paragraph 90 of his reasons, Justice Corey concludes that sexual orientation is an analogous ground because it is, in Laforet's words from Egan, a deeply personal characteristic that is either unchangeable or changeable only at an unacceptable personal cost. Justice Laforet and Egan, at the end of paragraph 5, also restrictively characterized analogous grounds as being those based on innate characteristics. As demonstrated by Justice McLaughlin, writing for the majority in Miron and Trudel, this court has endorsed a much more varied and comprehensive approach to the determination of whether a particular basis for discrimination is analogous to those grounds enumerated in section 15 sub 1. She explained that, one indicator of an analogous ground may be that the targeted group has suffered historical disadvantage independent of the challenged distinction. Another may be the fact that the group constitutes a discrete and insular minority. Another indicator is a distinction made on the basis of a personal characteristic, as Justice McIntyre stated in Andrews, distinctions based on personal characteristics attributed to an individual solely on the basis of association with a group will rarely escape the charge of discrimination, while those based on an individual's merits and capacities will rarely be so classified. By extension, it has been suggested that distinctions based on personal and immutable characteristics must be discriminatory within Section 15 sub 1. That comes from Andrews. Additional assistance may be obtained by comparing the grounded issue with the grounds enumerated, or from recognition by legislators and jurists that the ground is discriminatory. All of these may be valid indicators in the inclusionary sense that their presence may signal an analogous ground. But the converse proposition that any or all of them must present to find an analogous ground is invalid. As Justice Wilson recognized in Turpin, they are but analytical tools which may be of assistance. This being said, I agree with Justices Corey and Yakubuchi to allow the appeal and dismiss the cross-appeal with costs. The following are the reasons delivered by Justice Major, dissenting in part. The IRPA provided at the relevant time in its preamble, among other things, that the purpose of that Human Rights Act is to recognize the principle that all persons are equal in dignity and rights, and to provide protection of those rights to all individuals in Alberta. It stated, Whereas it is recognized in Alberta as a fundamental principle and as a matter of public policy that all persons are equal in dignity and rights without regard to race, religious beliefs, color, gender, physical disability, mental disability, age, ancestry, or place of origin, and whereas it is fitting that this principle be affirmed by the legislature of Alberta in an enactment whereby those rights of the individual may be protected. Section 7 of the IRPA stated, no employer or person acting on behalf of an employer shall a. refuse to employ or refuse to continue to employ any person or b. discrimination against any person with regard to employment or any term or condition of employment 
because of their race, religious beliefs, color, gender, physical disability, mental disability, marital status, age, ancestry, or place of origin of that person or of any other person. Subsection 3 reads, Subsection 1 does not apply with respect to a refusal, limitation, specification, or preference based on a bona fide occupational requirement. Section 33 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms provides, Parliament or the legislature of a province may expressly declare in an act of Parliament or of the legislature, as the case may be, that the act or provision thereof shall operate notwithstanding a provision included in Section 2 or Section 7-15 to 15 of this Charter. Subsection 2 reads, An act or provision of an act in respect of which a declaration made under this section is in effect shall have such operation as it would have but for the provision of this charter referred to in the declaration. Subsection 3, A declaration made under subsection 1 shall cease to have effect five years after it comes into force or in such earlier date as may be specified in the declaration. Subsection 4, Parliament or the legislature of a province may reenact a declaration made under subsection 1. Subsection 5 reads, Subsection 3 applies in respect of a reenactment made under subsection 4. Analysis In the preamble of the IRPA, the province of Alberta makes it clear that the purpose of the legislation is to recognize the principle that all persons are equal in dignity and rights, and to provide protection of those rights to all individuals in Alberta through the elimination of discriminatory practices. Section 7 provides that no employer shall discriminate against any person with respect to employment because of the race, religious beliefs, color, gender, physical disability, mental disability, marital status, age, ancestry, or place of origin of that person, or of any other person. The absence of sexual orientation from the enumerated grounds gave rise to the litigation resulting in this appeal. The province of Alberta was invited to, but declined at the appeal to explain how people with different sexual orientations were not part of the phrase all persons are equal in dignity and rights, end quote. As well, the province of Alberta failed to demonstrate how the exclusion of sexual orientation from the IRPA accords with its legislative purpose. It is puzzling that the legislature, having enacted comprehensive human rights legislation that applies to everyone in the province, would then selectively deny the protection of the act to certain groups of individuals. No explanation was given, and none is apparent from the evidence filed by the province. The inescapable conclusion is that there is no reason to exclude that group from Section 7, and I agree with Justices Corey and Yakabuchi that to do so is discriminatory and offends their constitutional rights. While a number of submissions related to the appellant's employment as a teacher, this appeal will not be determinative of the matter between the appellant Vriend and his former employer, King's College. Extension of the legislation either by the court or by the legislature to include protection from discrimination based on sexual orientation will provide the first step in allowing the appellant to have his complaint heard by the Alberta Human Rights Commission. The ultimate success of that action, however, will depend in part on whether the college can demonstrate that its refusal to continue to employ Vriend was based on a bona fide occupational requirement pursuant to Section 7 sub 3 of the IRPA. The issue of whether a private fundamental Christian college can legitimately refuse to employ a homosexual teacher will be for the Alberta Human Rights Commission and not this court to decide. With respect to remedy, Justice Yakabuchi relies on the reasoning in Schachter in Canada to support his conclusion that the words sexual orientation ought to be read into the IRPA. In my view, the analysis in Schachter with respect to reading in is not compelling here. The court there decided that the appropriate remedy was to strike down the relevant legislation but temporarily suspend the declaration of invalidity. The directions on reading in were not, as the Chief Justice stated, intended as hard and fast rules to be applied regardless of factual context. In my opinion, Schachter did not contemplate the circumstances that pertain here, that is, where the legislature's opposition to including sexual orientation as a prohibited ground of discrimination is abundantly clear on the record. Reading in may be appropriate where it can be safely assumed that the legislature itself would have remedied the under-inclusiveness by extending the benefit or protection to the previously excluded group. That assumption cannot be made in this appeal. The issue may be that the legislature would prefer no Human Rights Act over one that includes sexual orientation as a prohibited ground of discrimination. Or the issue may be how the legislation ought to be amended to bring it into conformity with the Charter. That determination is best left to the legislature, as was stated in Hunter and Southam, while the courts are guardians of the Constitution and of individuals' rights under it, it is the legislature's responsibility to enact legislation that embodies appropriate safeguards to comply with the Constitution's requirements. 
it should not fall to the courts to fill in the details that will render legislative lacunae constitutional, end quote. There are numerous ways in which the legislation could be amended to address the under-inclusiveness. Sexual orientation may be added as a prohibited ground of discrimination to each of the impugned provisions. In doing so, the legislature may choose to define the term sexual orientation, or it may devise constitutional limitations on the scope of the protection provided by the IRPA. As an alternative, the legislature may choose to override the charter breach by invoking Section 33 of the Charter, which enables Parliament or a legislature to enact a law that will operate notwithstanding the rights guaranteed in Sections 2 and Sections 7 to 15 of the Charter. Given the persistent refusal of the legislature to protect against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, it may be that it would choose to invoke Section 33 in these circumstances. In any event, it should lie with the elected legislature to determine the issue. They are answerable to the electorate of that province, and it is for them to choose the remedy, whether it is changing the legislation or using the notwithstanding clause. That decision, in turn, will be judged by the voters. The responsibility of enacting legislation that accords with the rights guaranteed by the Charter rests with the legislature. Except in the clearest of cases, courts should not dictate how under-inclusive legislation must be amended. Obviously, the courts have a role to play in protecting Charter rights by deciding on the constitutionality of legislation. Deference and respect for the role of the legislature come into play in determining how unconstitutional legislation will be amended where various means are available. Given the apparent legislative opposition to including sexual orientation in the IRPA, I conclude that this is not an appropriate case for reading in. It is preferable to declare the offending sections invalid and provide the legislature with an opportunity to rectify them. I would restrict the Declaration of Invalidity to the employment-related provisions of the IRPA. That is sections 7 sub 1, 8 sub 1, and 10. While the same conclusions may apply to the remaining provisions of the IRPA, this court has stated that charter cases must not be considered in a factual vacuum, as was decided in McKay and Manitoba. The only remaining issue is whether the declaration of invalidity ought to be temporarily suspended. In Schachter, Chief Justice Lamar stated that the declaration of invalidity may be temporarily suspended where the legislation is deemed unconstitutional because of under-inclusiveness rather than overbreadth, and striking down the legislation would result in the deprivation of benefits from deserving persons without thereby benefiting the individual whose rights have been violated. There is no intention to deprive individuals in Alberta of the protection afforded by the IRPA, but only to ensure that the legislation is brought into conformity with the Charter, while simultaneously respecting the role of the legislature. I would therefore order that the Declaration of Invalidity be suspended for one year to allow the legislature an opportunity to bring the impugned provisions into line with its constitutional obligations. I agree with my colleagues that the exclusion of sexual orientation as a protected ground of discrimination from Sections 7 sub 1, 8 sub 1, and 10 of the IRPA violates Section 15 of the Charter and cannot be saved under Section 1. I would declare these sections unconstitutional but suspend the Declaration of Invalidity for a period of one year. Ultimately, the appeal was allowed, and with Justice Major dissenting in part. The cross-appeal was dismissed with costs. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you're able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademeyer. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademeyer. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music done by Matt Rademeyer at radandkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at legallistening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.